Texas talking. Oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking. Ah, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Texas guys love. I'm Andy Roddick. Proud to be in Austin tonight, and I appreciate everything the Texas Tribune does for our great city. We too are helping Austin with the Andy Roddick Foundation, helping underserved elementary school kids locally. While I'd rather be beating Evan Smith on the tennis courts, instead, I'll serve up your host. You see what I did there? Thank you. This is Ross Ramsey here with the Tribcast for the fourth week of January. Since Emily Ramshaw is out and has been waiting for that, we called her to get her reaction to Andy Roddick. I'm joined this morning by um, Editor-in-Chief and CEO Evan Smith. I don't know what she has such a erotic thing for. She does have a big erotic thing. Yeah, it's you know she's been talking about it forever. Country and now you pre- get me an Andy Roddick intro. Get you, me an Andy Roddick intro. And so you we finally see, get it when she's not even the here. The first week that she's not here. We're also joined by reporter Kia Collier. Hello. And reporter Terry Langford. Hi. Neither of you give a crap about Andy Roddick. Right? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I, I see There's some Emily's head shaking going on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's let's start with campaign finance. This was uh, the we got the first reports of the you know before the primary. Um, and kind of got a look at who's got a lot of money. Interestingly, there's a ton of money in the accounts of people who aren't on the ballot. Um, Greg Abbott has 22 million plus. Right. Uh, Dan Patrick has seven and a half million plus. Um, I guess that's a pretty good defense against future attacks. Joe Strauss, who is on the ballot, has 8.8 million, and that's after spending about a half million on advertising. He's already loaded up on some of his TV spots, his radio spots, his direct mail. This is an arms race. You know, everybody in elective office has an, uh, an overwhelming advantage over the people who challenge them or might challenge them because as the incumbent, you just drag your sack along the bottom of the ocean and you and you collect these uh, these big checks. It's You know, it's true in some races. It's not true in others. Sid Miller, who has been, you know, as out front as any statewide official in Texas this year only has 20,000 in the bank so it has some well I will, up I will grant you that that the, the agriculture commissioner is an, is, an, is an outlier in that but you know the top three guys the top three state leaders right. Abbott Patrick and Strauss have what a combined 36 million dollars in the bank yeah it's probably enough it's pretty formidable <laughs> now you say Strauss is the only one of those on the ballot this time true he's running for his lowly state representative seat right he's not running as speaker Joe Strauss he's running as representative Joe Strauss and he has two primary challengers one of them has money in the mid four figures the other one I think has less than a hundred thousand dollars in his uh, campaign account that doesn't mean that they won't be competitive or they won't get some votes on primary day but if you're running against Joe Strauss and he's got all that money in the bank he certainly starts out with a pretty big advantage yeah as you go down the ballot you know the people who actually do have races in the house and in the Senate really contested races you can see the money starting to percolate percolate there um, but it's not always true that if you're in a competitive race in Texas that you have a lot of money right Kia that's true. Um, in the State Board of Education races, there's, I guess, three um, contested uh, primary races going on there. And, um, you know, candidates have raised a few hundred dollars, maybe a few thousand. Um, uh, it's kind of like judicial races, I guess, hard to raise money, but it's a really important job. And so. also, they're counting in all likelihood on straight ticket voting. You know, nobody actually gets well, down you can't to have the straight level ticket. Of, there's no straight ticket voting. It's a primary. Well, I mean, I'm talking about eventually. Right. I'm thinking about the general more than the primary, but I guess the the point is, I'm thinking that those races in the, in in a 
in the broad sense, nobody's paying attention to it, like is what I'm really saying. And so nobody is um, is thinking, I've got to really be out there and they campaign there. They should be. They should be, though. Well, they're, well, <laughs> well, they're, well, they're important, as are the yeah. judicial races. The judicial right. races are important, and, they, and the outcomes of those races affect everybody. It's interesting, though, that the State Board of Education, for all the, you know, um, clucking and fighting about, you know, testing and textbooks and, you know, all of the, you know, high interest in, in all of that stuff, that it wouldn't attract more interest from A, money and be voters you know it's just sort of a weird place to have a backwater yeah it's true um i mean you have people like uh there's the president of the school board in lufkin challenging thomas ratliff and you know there's it's a pretty crowded field really in the in the um for the three contested races um i think there is maybe there are more candidates than there normally are but um yeah it's still not a lot of money and a lot of attention interest so the Definitely. great sorting underway, uh, voting starts in about three weeks, so they don't have much time to get their names known. We'll, we'll kind of see what happens. And we're beginning to also the other thing that's happening now. So part one of the sort of big reveal on the on this part of the race is the campaign finance numbers, right. and then the second thing is the endorsements. And you're beginning to see whether it's Texas Association of Business or the Texas Realtors, <clears throat> these you know fairly large footprint groups saying here are the candidates who we support. And, you know, it's interesting. You see where the really uh, contested and hot-button races are from those endorsement lists as much as anything. But clearly, there's a lot of attention on the Jonathan Stickland race up in Bedford, the Tony Tinderholt race in Arlington, the Molly White race in Belton, right. uh, the Matt Rinaldi race in Irving. Those four incumbents, all grassroots conservatives, have challengers to their left. Challengers might not like that description, but I hardly see how it's right. not the case. Right. Um, in the primaries, and, you know, uh, Rinaldi and, um, and Molly White uh, have, have seen, in the case of the realtors and TAB, for instance, uh, uh, their opponents have gotten the endorsements. Um, Stickland and Tinderholt with those two, t- those two groups went one and one. Um, the Supreme Court race in which Deborah Lehrman is running for re-election for her seat against Michael Massingale, um, you know, that's another one where you're beginning to see in the endorsements. I think TAB endorsed Massingale, but the Realtors endorsed uh, Lehrman. Um, we, we know which races are the races to pay attention to now. It's not only well, the Well, we know which numbers. races are the races that Austin's paying attention to. It's interesting. <clears throat> you know, the, you, a you, lot you, of these— You think that we ha- we're in the bubble? Shock of shocks. I, well, I think, you know, a lot of these races are interesting on the ground because, you know, it's a local race between this state representative and that challenger. But I think at the statewide level, a lot of these races are completely overshadowed by the presidential race. And I, I'm very curious to see what the fall off is. I, you know, everybody seems to expect, all the all the smart kids seem to expect turnout to go way up in the Republican primary because, you know, we have a contested presidential nomination in Texas. That hadn't happened on the Republican side in ages. It hadn't happened in Texas at all since 2008 when Clinton and Obama were on the ticket. Um, and it drives turnout up. And so, we've had this argument before as to whether the likelihood of a Cruz-Trump or Trump-Cruz finish in Texas on March 1st is ultimately better for the grassroots candidates on the ballot or right. for the non There hasn't been much coverage of the Metroplex House races, really, which are, I mean, kind right. of the going to be the bellwether for... Um, yeah, there's like you know, the four races that Evan mentioned, and then there's four races on the other side, uh, the Jason Vialba race in Dallas, the Byron Cook race in Corsicana. Charlie Guerin in Fort Worth. Charlie Guerin in Fort Worth. Um, Joe Strauss is one of those races. Right. Um, you know, you see some, some challenges here and there. You've got a group that would like to oust Joe Strauss as speaker, you know, running you know, something on the order of 30 or 35 races, arguably, around the state. I think, you know, a lot of those are... Uh, you know, magical thinking, but you know, we'll we'll see how they go. But but there is this there is this um, sort of 
block in the middle, if you're a you know, if you're running for a state office, railroad commissioner or one of the judicial seats or state board of education, you're sort of lost between what the local interested ra- races of local interest yeah. and the stuff at the top. So what's the state of play in the presidential right now? Well, I, I spent last night driving from one part of Austin to another at the exact <laughs> moment that Sarah Palin was endorsing Donald Trump. And while I was driving, my mind was, you know, r- racing, listening to her. Uh, it had been a while since I had to fill the Sarah Palin's rhetoric and oratory, oratorical skills. I was trying to diagram her sentences, and I decided was, it was, was too Tina hard. Bay on my radio. I was starting <laughs> to drive off the road trying to diagram her sentences. Um, you know, every election is the most interesting election of our lifetimes. This one actually is. Um, and, and you said this the, four years ago, I think. The twists and turns, oh, hell, the, <laughs> 2012 wasn't anything compared to this. The twists and turns of this race continue to be so interesting. I wonder if Cruz peaked in Iowa. You know, there was a, a period of time a week to 10 days ago or two weeks ago where Cruz was uh, on the upswing in Iowa where he was widening his lead over Trump. Trump was, you know, not exactly falling, but he had kind of plateaued or was maybe in the in the neighborhood of plateauing. And, you know, he started to bang the birther drum and then the stuff on Goldman Sachs and the bank loans came out. And now the Sarah Palin endorsement has happened, which may be only former governor came out against Cruz, former governor of well, the current governor, actually, Terry Grandstead of Iowa didn't endorse any candidate. But he said, I think that everybody should work to defeat Ted Cruz. Right. You know, we, we got 11 days left or 12 days left, whatever it is, February 1st, whatever it is between now and February 1st as we right. sit here, uh, before the caucuses happen. Um, there are a limited number of news cycles left. Uh, so. uh, Palin's Trump endorsement seems to, like, hurt Cruz more than it helps Trump. I don't know. Well, is it's that one of those what things that if you were just sitting back and saying, you know, who do you think Sarah Palin would endorse? You know, a lot of people would answer Ted Cruz. And in fact, Ted Cruz himself said prior to yesterday and actually said when it became clear that Palin was endorsing Trump, he acknowledged, I wouldn't have gotten elected to the Senate without Sarah Palin. I was around in 2012. I'm not sure I remember Sarah Palin playing a a disproportionate role. Did a big event in uh, spring and uh, some other things along the way. I think David Dewhurst helped Ted Cruz win more than Sarah Palin. Gave him an endorsement at at an important time. I don't know that it determined the outcome of that race, but it it was helpful. To Kia's point, I don't know what effect it has on Trump's chances. Are there people who are going, I'm on the fence. I can't decide whether to vote for Donald Trump. Oh, Sarah Palin endorsed him. I'll vote for him now. Right. I, I just think that it ultimately creates a moment for Trump to seize momentum maybe in the race or seize it back. Mm-hmm. I don't think we know what's going to happen. I was with Matthew Dowd, the former Bush strategist and now ABC News commentator last night on an event. And he said, and this is obviously one person's opinion, that if Trump wins Iowa and Trump wins New Hampshire, essentially the Republican primary is over. He believes that Cruz does not have the opportunity if Trump wins those first two contests. South Carolina Super Tuesday doesn't turn He thinks he wins South Carolina. He thinks that the Super Tuesday races, which are essentially too many on one day, that it sort of becomes a national election at that point. And um, his belief was that it's absolutely crucial for Cruz to win Iowa if Cruz has a chance of winning this nomination. So the state of play in the race is basically Trump, Cruz, Cruz, Trump, and everybody else a distant. And Sarah Palin uh, playing for but, vice president. And Sarah Palin playing for Team <laughs> Trump matters, yeah. and it helps you know, to some degree, um, um, rest momentum and, and headlines and news cycles away from Cruz. Let, let's scoot to something else in politics. Um, our attorney general, and I want to talk about um, the new charges, and I also want to talk about, you know, we, we can't pass on gambling. So, uh, Terry, you got to take on this, on this um, new legal stuff. Yeah, the new legal stuff is fairly interesting. Um, 
as we all know, the AG Ken Paxton has been charged with. Uh, he was indicted last July on uh, securities fraud, securities fraud, having to do with some investments he made and a sale of some of those investments and how he profited it from it, and he didn't disclose. That has yet to come to trial, and yet quietly we. No one realized that two months ago, new special prosecutors in a different uh, allegation. So these guys can't move without leaks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what happened was last, no, uh, last November, uh, the judge in the current case went ahead and appointed two special prosecutors in these new allegations involving a land deal that Ken Paxson uh, was involved in. Ken Paxson was involved in a limited partnership with the, the DA, his longtime friend Greg Willis right. of Collin County, and they were in a limited partnership called El Dorado Collin, and they bought some land in McKinney in 2004 for about $700,000, and about a year or so later, they sold it for over a million to a development company, and lo and behold, it became the site of the new appraisal district office. So what's what's wrong? I mean, that all sounds legit. It does sound legit. We don't know much that's going on in this case. I think the underlying whispering campaign is, did he know? The problem, There's and a I'm zoning not saying change it, here, right? there is a zoning change here, and it involves a friend of Paxton. Uh, the McKinney Zoning Commission went ahead and uh, approved a critical zoning change for that property before it was sold to the development company, and that change opened up the development for the appraisal district's building. And the Zoning Commission's vice chair is Don Day, who is owns some property or has owned property with Ken Paxton. Right. So Collin County t continues to be like the biggest small town in Texas in some ways. It's like yes. Everybody's in every deal. It's weird. Yes, it is. You know, this is the same DA who earlier passed on the Paxton case because he and Paxton are longtime are, friends. Are friends. And then this plays into a, a race for the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals where one of the judges um, was involved in the Paxton indictments. Another one of the people... A, a, you know, who's running for that job is another Collin County judge who's on Paxton's side of it. It's just like the Collin County wars are make, going statewide here. It's kind of a real Peyton place up there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so Paxton also came out this week on gambling. Um, he got asked for an opinion on whether these fantasy football things that you see all the time on TV are legal in Texas and basically said, you know, without – he, he pointed out that he wasn't really taking a position on it other than interpreting the law, but he said, um, no, I think they're illegal. Um, so I, I love the, the Mark Cuban tweet. What was the Mark Cuban attacking tweet? Attacking Paxton that was then deleted, but Bobby Blanchard, oh, our, our former colleague Bobby Blanchard <clears throat> at the Dallas News, captured the tweet. I'll have to go find I'll, I'll pull it up. Cuban was... Um, I would say contemptuous in that Mark Cuban he don't like way yeah. of Paxton's uh, of Paxton's ruling. And then he changed his mind. What, what's the story? So I don't he, know. Well, well the, the, when you delete a tweet, you don't have to give a reason. I, mean, I don't actually know why he deleted it. <laughs> let me let me let me pull up uh, so this, while you're talking. This gets this gets really tweet. interesting. I mean, the, the the cast of characters that are tangled up in this is fascinating. The the Texas Lottery. The Dallas News had some stories that the Texas Lottery had Randy been talking Grissom? about doing right. some. Um, I guess co-marketing or some kind of partnership on games with the fantasy sports people, DraftKings or, or um, what's the other one? FanDuel. Thank you. Um, 
You know, with one of those things, uh, my friends at ESPN are going to laugh that I just not that she plays. I've just blanked all that stuff out. I turned the commercial, the volume on the commercials down. Not that Terry's an investor or anything. So, so the Texas Lottery was talking to them. So that was going on. The sports teams, I guess, notably the Cowboys and Jerry Jones, have been financially involved with DraftKings. You know, this is one of those things that involves a lot of really interesting players and and. You know, not to mention the Texas lottery, and it's just kind of fun. And it, you know, it falls into the same bucket as the ongoing fight with the Texas Racing Commission over historical racing. It's like the state's keeping everybody out of the gambling business, so only the lottery will thrive. <laughs> Do you think Paxton was kind of going with the the long Republican tradition of opposing gambling, or I, you know, I think he was, you know, his hat to on, that. on I this one. I mean, if you read his opinion, it's you know, I. It's hard to argue that he's not just following the law. You know, the legislature's put, you know, I mean, clearly registered what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, he's just reading, you know, what the legislature wrote. Now, the legislature wrote that while he was in the legislature. So, you know, he's already voted for the laws he's now defending. Right. Right. Um, But, you know, I think he's looking at this and saying, you know, the, the fantasy football thing has tried to operate in this area where it's not really gambling. This is a game of skill. Um, you know, if you've ever played fantasy football. Um, Let me correct what I said. I believed from my reading of it yesterday that the Cuban tweet was deleted. The Cuban tweet now appears not, Cuban to, tweet? not to be deleted. But Bobby was the one who actually – I had. A, it took me a the little Cuban while. The Cuban tweet sounds like something Abbott did Bobby in Havana. Blanchard apparently under orders from Brandy Grissom or Bob Garrett or somebody tweets like every goddamn second. So I had to go back through like 8,000 <laughs> tweets between yesterday and now. The, Ken pa- the Mark Cuban tweet, which again appears not to be – my mistake appears not to be deleted – was Ken Paxton TX, what a disappointment, read DFS, which I guess is the fantasy sports thing. You certainly don't represent the views of Texans. And then there are a series of tweets beyond that well, that are less rich. specific he should to run Paxton in which Cuban – well, I thought he was going to be Trump's vice president, wasn't he? <laughs> um, you know, look, I, th- th- there's an interesting conversation to, to be had around this idea of liberty, except when I don't agree with the way that you're using your freedom. You know, it's sort of part 100 on this, is that, that well, the, 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 the people who run the state right now, including the attorney general, are big advocates for people being able to self-determine, do whatever they want, you know, all that. You would think that maybe you might be able to put into that bucket, well, if I want to play fantasy sports and waste my money and spend my money and lose my money, whatever else, that maybe they should be permitted under the broad heading of liberty. Well, this is this, this is one of those issues that lives on the borderline between the social conservatives right. and the libertarians. Right. And right. the religious conservatives often have an objection to gambling, right? That there's a Baptist well, argument against— Well, unless you want to do bingo right. in the Catholic Church, basically. Which they don't consider to be gambling. Well, right. right. That's fundraising. Yeah, right. B23, B23. Uh, we have a new education chief in Texas. Um, one of the things mm-hmm. that you know these guys were doing between their— that the governor's been doing between his visits to foreign countries is appointing people. Um, and he's actually gotten kind of active. And he snuck in a big one that kind of wasn't on everybody's radar. Everybody was watching for a new education chief. And Abbott pulled out a name that wasn't on everybody's list. That's right. Yeah. Well, it was on a, it was on a list, though, right? It was, well, it was on the only list that counts. <clears throat> well, it was on Abbott's list. I mean, his name <laughs> right. had been reported as a potential candidate for this job, right? Yes, yeah. Um, I think the Dallas Morning News mentioned him. Um, yeah, he's a really interesting guy. He's um, he's young. Um, he's his 30- name is? Mike Morath. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, he's, uh, you know, 38 years old. Um, he's served, you know, he's a businessman. He served... Uh, one term uh, on the Dallas School Board, was just reelected. Um, he's kind of credited with 
um, driving the school reform movement in Dallas. He was the um, planted the seed for the whole uh, home rule discussion in Dallas that ultimately failed. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know teachers kind of don't like him because of that. Uh, he also uh, was. Uh, instrumental in uh, a merit-based teacher pay system, which is, you know, controversial. But, um, you know, he told me that uh, it's working well and created more money to, um, you know, pay experienced teachers um, and high performers better. Um, and so, yeah, he um, he seems very passionate. He's very smart by all accounts. He was kind of a computer whiz kid and graduated from George Washington in two and a half years. Um, Garland High School, I guess he grew up up there, right? He did, yeah. He um, There was this profile of him in, in D Magazine that detailed, um, I guess he was born in Appalachia, and his um, parents were like, you know, he's not going to get a good education here, so they somehow moved to Texas, and his mom apparently called it, he also told me this, but uh, his mom called the TEA and demanded to know what the best school was to go to, Um, and like called multiple times, and they wouldn't tell her at first, I guess, and then finally, um, I guess. They they sent him, his family, to the Tribune website. (laughs) Or did he, look at their data, their data Young, not data. quite that young. This was no. before our time, yeah. but um, or yeah. Did f- or did the so, TEA forward to that horrible yeah. website that they yeah. have and all? This right. Stuff. Well, so he ended up at the International Baccalaureate Program in Garland and um, did very well for himself, apparently. So, so, yeah. so who who gets set off in a positive and a negative way by this appointment? Well, it's a tip of that to school reformers, uh, which is, you know, uh, a lot of people think vouchers when you say that, but it's a very diverse group of, you know, uh, business interests, homeschoolers, right? The broadest, right? The broadest definition of choice, and he, you know, um, I think some assume that he's like pro, you know, voucher or something, but I didn't really, I, I don't know. I well, think I'm going to interview him on Friday, as you know, in El Paso. Yes, exactly. We'll live stream that conversation over the lunch Maybe hour. And I certainly him. intend to ask him about <laughs> vouchers because, yeah. among other things, whatever Dan Patrick, the lieutenant governor, wishes to call it, there are people who perceive Dan Patrick's yep. march towards school choice, which he is not giving up in the interim and intends to come back to in the spring, that vouchers play, or what we think of as vouchers play some uh, role there. Look, I can tell you, Ross, from when I was uh, before the holiday, uh, in December was in Corpus Christi speaking to a group of superintendents from Southeast Texas. Marath had just at that point been named. Um, he had not won the room at that point, you know, to, to talk to individual superintendents about then um, commissioner designate Marath. I think they were all really concerned about whether he was going to be on their side or not. Was he one of them or not? Was this a political appointment intended to advance a political agenda? That's my interpretation. They didn't use those words. I'm using those words or not. This is a cold question, but do do you guys have an idea yet what the difference might be between Michael Williams, who's outgoing, and and what the old Mike and the new Mike? I think it's hard to tell. I mean, he's obviously... um you know, accountable to someone else, right? <laughs> um, different governor who probably has different ideas about things, but um, no, not much. I don't think very much. Maybe has, has I'll, I'll, can, I, can I take a stab at that? Kia yeah. gave what I would expect to be the Kia-like diplomatic, responsible, <laughs> intelligent, responsible. Let me give you that was the ego. Let me get or the id, the ego is the id. What, what is it? Id or ego? Uh, whatever. Go back and read it. Let, let her be kind of the intellectual. The sort of, I'm going to be the kind of the jerk here. Um, no you surprise. Yeah. Right. Um, well, play the difference is that Mike Michael Williams has appointed his knowledge of education was essentially limited to the fact that he had gone to school. Michael Williams had not come out of the education 
uh, industry or the education community. He right. had been a railroad commissioner. He'd been an unsuccessful candidate for Senate and Congress. Been a civil rights lawyer in really the Justice Department. Really interesting. And, and I mean, worked in really... the Department of Education at the federal level, but in the Civil Rights Division long ago. What Michael Williams did not uh, uh, have in his immediate background was any experience school board, school board yeah, yeah. superintendent, right. sure. any of that school policy stuff. Right. In some ways, I think what makes people in the education community nervous about Marath is not that he has no experience, but that he has experience. And he actually has a particular point of view. He comes to the table with a knowledge base. He comes to the table having been a, a combatant on some of these issues. And he comes at this from a side different from the, quote, education establishment. It may very well be that he figures out exactly the right way to work closely with these folks, superintendents and others. And it's all kumbaya. Yeah, no. But I mean, there's some anxiety, yeah. you would acknowledge. No, when I when I talked yeah. to him, he made a point to repeatedly say, I want to learn from superintendents yeah. and teachers and to really express respect um, for them. And um, so I think he's aware of that. And um, and he also said he doesn't plan to push any of the reform policies he pushed in Dallas statewide. Um, who's fist pumping? Who's who's really happy about this? Uh, Texans for Education Reform. The tier group, which is the extension of TLR, uh, right? The education reform folks, right. those guys absolutely are for it. T-E-R and then T-I-E-R is something else, right? Yeah. I get, I'm lost in acronym soup here, but yeah. Yeah, so many acronyms. Um, Dan Patrick, Lieutenant Governor Patrick, is excited. They were sitting together at um, the TPPF Policy Forum um, uh, that happened recently and um, seemed real chummy and happy <laughs> together. <laughs> so we'll see. So let's talk about another um, top official in the executive branch. You got a chance to sit down with the TPS director the other day, Steve McCraw. Steve McCraw. And, so and Steve you got more than sort of a standard, you know, I always have in my head this, you know, what I call the trooper interview when you go to a, you know, right. from being a baby reporter, you go out and you say, was there an accident here? Yep. Some Anybody of us, hurt? some yep. of us remember like Adam 12, you remember right. the old, so the Just, old cop shows on TV? I yep. don't know what nope. you're talking yep. no. about. <laughs> no. Well, I, I'll, I'll take the bullet. <laughs> demographically on that and say that I remember those uh, uh, days. CSI, uh, the 60s. I, ex I expected, uh, I don't know Colonel McCraw. I, I met Colonel McCraw maybe to shake his hand a couple times, but I've never actually had an extended conversation with Colonel McCraw until yesterday. And, of course, the interest in having Colonel McCraw come and sit down with us, uh, uh, guns is obviously a topic that DPS has a big uh, uh, conversation, uh, place in the conversation about, open carry having just been made legal on January 1st. Um, uh, the Sandra Bland case and everything associated with the Sandra Bland case, which kind of heated up in the first couple of weeks of January when the grand jury came back, made the decision to indict um, the DPS trooper involved in the stop, Brian Insignia, on a misdemeanor charge of perjury, right. but declined to indict the Waller County jailers. Um, this was, And then the family of Sandra Bland decided they wanted to file a federal civil rights lawsuit, and the DPS and others pushed back and said... The timing of this is bad. It's going to somehow impede the investigation into Insignia's uh, uh, indictment or the or the continuing process of Insignia's indictment working its way through the system. And, of course, DPS made the decision, and it was really Steve McCraw who made the decision to initiate termination proceedings on Trooper Insignia 
in the course of all this, there's a long appeal process that may keep Insignia not terminated until who knows how long. But all of this is roiling. So you've got guns, you've got Sandra Bland, and of course you've got the ongoing conversation about homeland security, border security. Right. What are you doing with that 800 million? What do you do with the 800 million? And is the data that's being provided to all of us Mm -hmm. to understand better DPS's role on the border, is it clear, accurate, and disaggregated from local and federal statistics so that we have enough of a picture of what DPS in and of itself is doing down on the border? You know, he was fairly expansive. He was not expansive on the gun question because in some ways... You know, he's got to be, Terry, right? He's got to be deferential. Right. Um, You know, they're the largest, you know, they're the, you know, state police force. And that's something that I think we forget. And there has been uh, a lot of uh, discussion among sheriffs and police chiefs. Several disagree. Um, Well, in fact, at one point last year, 75 percent of police chiefs in Texas disagreed with the idea that open carry should be the law. Right. Of the state. And Macron never expressed an opinion until 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 yesterday. Right. He said, yes, I supported it, but I wasn't going to get in the way of that because it wasn't really my place to do that or get in the decision making process. I mean, and I think it was very interesting to even hear him for such a uh, extended period of time. He is very quiet. He does have sort of. I don't mean this as a criticism, but I, I have seen his stump speech before the committees. Yeah, but I don't think again. he gave us. My read he, was no, he did not give us. No, a stump he did yesterday. not, and I thought it was very interesting to hear yeah. him. Sometimes I think he's yeah. he's he just comes out right um, for committee testimony, and then you don't see so, him again. And yeah. so I th- I thought it was fascinating. So the the gun stuff, he didn't say very much on the gun stuff that would have been surprised anybody. And on the immigration stuff, he said, you know, the border's not secure. He actually said, I want to go back on what I said in December of 2014. If, in fact, I, and I qu- read, read back a quote to him in which he said, I don't think we have anything to be he didn't concerned look about. very happy about that. On, on terrorism, <laughs> I don't think we, we will need to be concerned about terrorists crossing the border. He seemed a little bit less certain today that we don't have a threat, ISIS specifically, he said, of people potentially crossing the border. I thought the most interesting stuff for me, as a relative novice to, on mm-hmm. this subject, who's kind of gotten up to speed, wanted to engage him on this, was the bland stuff. He was he was very expansive, expansive on the bland stuff, and forthright about the fact that this was all on the trooper, that the, what went wrong in the bland stop was all on the trooper. Um, We've heard that in fits and starts you know. through this whole thing. I mean, when. Uh, the video was released, for instance, in Prairie View. Um, there was a huge uh, confab of lawmakers and um, the Waller County officials and uh, Steve McCraw. And Steve McCraw, I mean, he that was probably not his favorite day, having to present sure. that video and explain it. But he has not shied about the fact that uh, the trooper did not follow policy right. and that this was not a typical DPS SOP. I mean, he has not shied about it. He just hasn't talked about it at right. length. And then he talked beyond the Bland case, specifically, Ross, about, as you know, race and policing and right. whether we have a problem on race and policing. He identified that problem more as a perception problem. Well, this is where I was, you know, and I may have not been listening closely enough to other conversations, but he talked about the problem of not always identifying Hispanics as Hispanics, right. know, identifying them as Anglos, and so you get funky numbers. And he said, you know, we're also supposed to be um, identifying Middle Easterners, and I hadn't heard that before. Right. Apparently, that came up uh, one of the committee meetings uh, hearings on uh, ticketing and their data last month. That came up. Apparently, it uh, was passed in the 81st legislature, and it, they've been collecting. There are five 
ethnic group race categories that they uh, that they collect. The other one, uh, the other two that people don't normally think of as Asian and Native American. Um, but yeah, that was the first time I had heard that, and I had not realized that. And they're trying to get some of this information now onto driver's licenses, so they don't have to actually ask drivers all the time. And right. What Macross said, and it, and you know, you can imagine uh, someone who stopped is already ticked off. Uh, they've been stopped. Uh, they're not real happy. So when a trooper comes on that person, if you're going to ask them about race, they're not going to be in a What really... race are you? My race is up yours. Right. How's that for what race am I? Right. right. And so what he was saying is they've studied that. And I thought this was fairly interesting, that they've studied that that conversation and how do you de-escalate it. And one of the things that they've they're looking at is making it so that the driver's license information and your race information is downloaded on the warning or the ticket somehow and then the driver would look at it and is everything correct that takes sort of the it's sort of a more neutral way to present takes that. it off the yeah. trooper and right well he said something else about those interactions that i thought was interesting when he was talking about diversifying the uh the state police right basically and said you know some of this is not white officers, he says you got to be careful when you're hiring, some of this is not white officers and minority citizens, some of this is white citizens and minority officers, and kind of went into this whole... Um, right, and that they're getting it from both sides. Right. They're not only getting it from white drivers who might, you know... Um, Complaints from racist drivers, basically. Right, basically. You've got racist <laughs> white drivers, but also... They're also getting it from right. members of their own minority group. Look, one thing that I'll, I know you need to wrap this up. One thing that c was clear to me coming out of this conversation was the DPS has a problem with transparency of data. You know, we reported we reported we reported last year on the percentage of the traffic stops in the last five years that had been Hispanic drivers versus Anglo drivers. Remember, the DPS pushed back on that. Subsequently, the American Statesman reported that they were uh, undercounting Latinos by identifying a number of Latino drivers as white. There was a separate story that ran at the end of last year in either the States or the Morning News talking not about race and policing, but serious, what they call serious complaints against officers during traffic stops, um, you know, the way that officers treated uh, drivers. Um, uh, the, in 2013 and 2014, DPS claimed to these reporters that there had only been 76 serious complaints. Well, the, oh, it was the AP actually reported this. 76 serious complaints. The AP got the information independent of DPS, and it turned out that it was actually three times the number of complaints. Right. And, of course, there continues to be the beating of the drums from Cesar Blanco, the representative from El Paso, that DPS is not providing adequate transparency into their performance on the border as part of Operation Strong Safety, claiming some federal and local results as DPSs. DPS needs to be transparent about its data. We can all accept that. Steve McCraw did not seem to take the bait when I asked him if they had a problem on data. It seems to me they have a problem on data. They did. And what I got from your conversation with them is not only do they have a problem with data, there's always a caveat with DPS data. Yeah. They always have, well, you didn't interpret it right. When you present the data back to them and say, does it say this? They'll tell you that, and then later they'll throw you under a bus and say you misinterpreted it. Right. They, I think an agency that just got $800 million has got to find a way to like benchmark a little bit. I, I expect well, a little the, bit the, the, better. The, the legislature demands accountability for yes. every dollar spent at other agencies. They probably are going to be demanding the same kind of accountability. It's going to be interesting yeah. when they convene in a year. Yes. 
Let's end it there. If you have questions or comments, email them to tribcast at texastribune.org. You can also sign up for Tribcast alerts at texastribune.org slash Tribcast. We'd like to thank Shiny Ribs for doing our music on behalf of Evan, Terry, Kia, and our producer, Todd. This is Ross. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Ross, I think you should do like a "This Is How Sex Works" podcast. I think that would probably yeah, that's, that's, that's coming. would be would be off the charts on the analytics dashboard. Mm-hmm.